Good morning, happy Wednesday, and thanks for tuning in. This is a very special edition of the Monday Morning Minutes podcast with Stanford's Ed Bryant having the absolute pleasure of interviewing Tealbook's founder and CEO, Stephanie Lapierre. Tealbook is a startup that provides an enterprise cloud platform that empowers procurement teams through leveraging advanced AI to deliver better visibility, increased accuracy, and effortless analytics across the supplier base, which in late January raised an additional $5 million in a Seed Plus funding round. Stephanie Lapierre is a two-time founder, natural problem solver, mother of three, and one of the top 100 most influential women in supply chain. In the shadow of International Women's Day that passed this Sunday, it is important to shine light on women founders that are truly trailblazing for the next generation to look up to. Over the course of this interview, Stephanie discusses her early career and entrepreneurial journey, the issues facing supply chain management in the 21st century, and how she balances the professional and the personal. What does a career businesswoman do on maternity leave? She starts a multi-million dollar business, then does it again years later. Welcome, Stephanie, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, maybe we could start, like what we'd love to do is kind of dig into a little bit of what shapes you as an entrepreneur and how you kind of got to that place in, in your, in your um, career. So maybe we could start with a little bit of background on you firstly, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit, bit better, like maybe where you grew up, where you went to university, your early career before Tilburg, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. I'm, uh, so I'm originally from Quebec and um, grew up as a French speaking Canadian. And um, I, I, I mean, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So my, uh, my grandparents, mother, father, brother, sister, <laughs> everyone, I think all my girlfriends from high school have their own business in some ways. Um, right. I've always been surrounded by, by it. I don't think that's sort of my normal. And so I don't really think I imagine life any other way. Um, grew up, um, you know, um, enjoying a lot of Quebec weather. So it was a big ski, a big skier. And I left at 18 Quebec to learn English and to become a ski instructor in Whistler. And so that was really fun. Awesome. Yeah. I learned English that worked out really well for me. <laughs> um, and, uh, not to outdate myself, actually, I was uh, a ski bum at the time with uh, Justin Trudeau, which is kind of a funny Side note. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a good story on that. Um, and then went to university uh, in Guelph. And so that came a bit of a left field at the time. But um, I heard that, that Guelph uh, had a marketing management program and it was close to Toronto. I thought it was on the other side of Toronto before Google Maps <laughs> of access right. to Atlas. And so I ended up in Guelph um, and did uh, BCom in marketing management. Um, and I always, you know, I always had business ideas. I actually started a business before going to Whistler, uh, doing um, corporate events. And me and this this person had I bought a production company with 300 artists that we were booking. And I ended up selling that company. Uh, and that's the money I used to go be a ski bum for a year. So already sort of that entrepreneurial side of me had started. And when I went to university, Part of me was looking for that idea and that the people that I would build a company with. My hope at the time was to, you know, have that sort of college experience of building a company from the ground up. 
uh, and debatably, you know, if I probably rethinking that there's different schools that could have probably enabled that a bit better for me, but uh, it all worked out. I ended up um, staying in Toronto after university, uh, met my now husband, uh, and we moved to Toronto for, or for, to Boston for about seven years or so. We've been back in Toronto now nine years. Uh, I've got three daughters, got as you mentioned, so uh, life has been fairly busy. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and we'll get to kind of how do you juggle all that a little bit later. But um, maybe, so it sounds like even in the beginning of your career when you graduated from university that the entrepreneurial thing was always like an underlying theme. Like you were you were always looking for that kind of entrepreneurial thing, even though while you were working, is, is that kind of yeah, correct? Yeah, I was. And actually my first job out of university was in a startup company, Um these guys had bought a publication and were building a, an agency. And so I started with them. I think we were five employees and, and scaled that to about 50 by the time I left. And about and that was in a year and a half, two years. So we grew pretty fast. Um, and I went from that company and, and became a pharmaceutical rep. Uh, and, and the rationale there was to get more of that um, sales experience, be in front of customers, get the proper mm -hmm. corporate training um, and, um, and I enjoyed that, but it was short lived. I went to work for a data, a big data company, uh, but all through that journey, you know, I was sort of collecting information of the things that I, I thought I wanted to do. I just didn't know exactly what the business was going to be. I always have ideas of something. Um, and at some point I had to pick one and, and do it. And so uh, that came a little later. Great. Well, and maybe that's a good transition now to kind of, you know, your book and how you kind of how you came up with the idea and um and how you named the company and maybe you could give us a little bit of background on on what till book does how you came up with the idea and and everything and and uh just kind of lead in there yeah so what inspired uh till book is actually my first real business so as a as a grown-up <laughs> i um i the first agency i worked for uh, when I moved to Boston, I had the opportunity to build their U.S. presence and really enjoy that. Um, I love building the business. I love the win, the business development, the strategy. Um, and at one point when I got pregnant with my first daughter, I decided to sort of rethink what I really enjoyed was the win, not so much. Uh, and, and that role was a lot of account management. And I was like, you know, I need to figure out what I really love. And uh, and you you spend so much time working, right? So finding really early on your strength, what you're ready to put up with, because not every, you know, there's not, there's not a perfect <laughs> job that mm -hmm. everything is sort of wonderful. Um, there's always hard parts, but if you can understand that about yourself. And so I, I did this exercise while pregnant to see what I really enjoyed and what I enjoy was building things and connecting to people. I was always a connector. And so I came up with this idea uh, of a company that was going to help, um, mostly commercial teams of large companies were facing some big challenges to find innovation to solve those challenges and give themselves a competitive advantage. So I started this company called Matchbook. And, and at the time I was pregnant and I thought, you know, if I could find myself a way to have a good work-life balance, that would be wonderful. I really think there's something to this uh, as a marketer working for a pharmaceutical company because I, I had done that as well. Um, I had found that it was really hard to differentiate your brand and you spend a lot of time with agencies trying to find innovation. And I'd say 97% of the time was sort of a bit wasted to hear something that was not overly innovative. And I think innovation comes from really identifying some hard problems and allowing 
companies and, and, and people to come and, and help uh, brainstorm. And so I built this company on that premise and uh, really enjoyed it. And the outcome for my customers were quite significant. And a lot of innovation comes from suppliers. And so it was looking for companies who either had solved the problem for another client before or had some really interesting ways or ideas on how they could solve the problem. And so our clients who were large companies were seeing this process uh, that were starting to be quantified in organization as a strategic sourcing role within procurement, which I didn't really know much about procurement other than, you know, procurement department from my companies, which I didn't interact a lot with. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. And, <clears throat> and so our clients were asking us to come in and help um, if we could help take that same process and, and educate or train their strategic sourcing team uh, to be more aligned with the goals and the, and the challenges of the stakeholders, that maybe we could bring those two functions together and get a lot more value out of that, that collaboration. And so I, I found that to be a really interesting challenge and really enjoyed that piece of it. And so, you know, working with procurement teams, uh, the change management part, um, you know, we're talking 15, 13 years ago, was quite difficult because procurement had been trained with the seven step process and, you know, getting the black belt and, and supply chain. And so they were really kind of stuck in their antiquated ways of how they've been trained. And so it was, it was challenging, but got a lot of really good outcome there as well. And then some of our contacts went to start going to smaller companies that were raising a lot of capital. And suddenly that business was shifting from helping these large organizations to now being asked to build procurement functions from the ground up. If they raise a lot of capital, they typically um, had to spend a lot of money quite quickly. And a lot of that money went to suppliers. And so they wanted to find either processes or be able to allow people in the organization to do procurement as opposed often to building a procurement function or having a procurement department. <clears throat> and so that was a, a really nice challenge. It gave us a clean slate to, well, if procurement could be done well, which I've seen it done well, and it brings incredible financial and operational efficiency, especially as a company scale, um, and if it's enabling, right, if it's transparent, if it's scalable, we could actually really accomplish something that's quite special. And what we found is even though the vision was great, very quickly as we build the procurement function and a way to have technology to do a lot of the things that typically a procurement department would be doing, is we found it very difficult and, and caused a lot of friction because you end up with pieces of information across these systems and very quickly become silos. And very quickly you lack the transparency and the relevance or the context of the information. And now you're sort of back into, uh, you know, causing a lot of friction, which, you know, large companies yeah. were facing. And so to me, what that was the puzzle is like, how, why is it so difficult for an employee of a company who needs to get their job done and need to do it with a supplier for many, many different reasons that it's services or product. If there's so much friction and delays with that experience, um, why is that, especially in our day-to-day -day lives where everything is so instant, but then that same person that's been using you know, social media and has been buying online and making reservations for restaurant instantly is going to work and facing experiences and, and one, workflow is just even an RFP from the moment you have a need for a supplier in an organization 
to getting that supplier on board just to get your job done, we're talking about 248 hours of efforts time over 18 to 19 weeks. And so yeah. that, that was the puzzle. That was, you know, if I, I try to kill the, this idea for nine years because I could see very clearly that if the data was resolved, a lot of the workflow built, a lot of the system actually built for addressing some of the workflow wouldn't be needed or would be a lot more effective if the data was unified and the company and the employees had access to it. They just didn't exist. And so you had to create it, which, you know, spend nine years trying to decide to not do it. <laughs> having yeah. a successful consulting business and having three kids, I, 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 I thought I don't need to be the one who's going to change the world of data and procurement, but it sort of, it sort of possessed me because nobody else had come up with the solution and I could see it. I could see clearly what needed to happen uh, and where the market was heading because the market was heading into building more software, which then just contributed to the problem and didn't fix it. Great. And, and how long ago was that? Like how long ago was that kind of genesis of that idea? And then maybe walk me through that first kind of 12 to 18 months after you just kind of decided to, to move forward with this. Like what did that look like? Yeah, I made the commitment five years ago. And so five years ago was like, I'm going to do this. I'm, I've talked about this. I've tried to kill the idea so many times. It keeps coming back. It's so, you know, it's, it's in my face every day as I'm building this consulting firm. And, um, at the time, I did it sort of a bit the stupid way. I think that the smarter way is building a team, raising capital, especially if you're building a data company. <laughs> I did this with my dining room. Um, <clears throat> initially, was building an MVP and, and trying to see, spend probably a year and a half originally talking to procurement teams and, and trying to understand how we were going to build this, what were the real problems, and you know, how we were going to build this in a way that was going to fit with the market. And at the beginning, we're talking five years ago, like nobody talked about machine learning or AI. Uh, we mm -hmm. were starting to talk about cloud technology in procurement, but a lot of chief procurement officers would say that they would never put their data into the cloud. And so if you think yeah. of it in five years, how much, how much has changed. But five years ago, I would get the eyes twitching and the pupil dilating. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. concept of having access to data in a way that could help you form better decisions. Um, and I think, you know, the market hadn't quite evolved, although most of the software companies were now moving to a cloud version of their technology. And so we built this platform. Originally, the intent was we're going to build it kind of like LinkedIn. We're going to build it. People are going to come on it and they're going to adopt it. Um, and the fact that they're going to be interacting with it will give better data back over time and, and you know, we'll get everyone on this, which was a bit naive um, thinking about it now. But I, I think sometimes naivety is a gift <laughs> if I knew how hard it was to build a company, a tech company, an AI tech company from scratch, I would do it differently. Um, maybe I would have not done it at all because it's, it's an enormous amount of work. Um, but at the time I thought, you know, let's, we're going to build it. And I, I, I had some very early wins with companies like Biogen, which is a $60 billion market cap company spending about $6 billion a year that believed, right? I, I found these customers that really saw the vision and for their own purpose, wanted to have access to this data. And so um, we were very fortunate early on to have that kind of traction which then led to building a team, which then led to getting our first uh, seed round. 
Um, and that's when we got um, Stand Up Ventures and IAF coming in as our lead investors. And so it's from that moment on, that was three years ago, uh, Jeff, our CTO uh, today, you know, I was looking for someone that could really build a technology. And I needed someone that understood all the components of what we were building and a lot of stars have to align when you build a company like this. And that was one of those moments where I met someone, Jeff, who had worked at Google, who had been at Ariba in a procurement software for, had worked for 10 years building their supplier network and their catalogs. And before that was at IBM. And he had just done a second master's at UFT in machine learning and was very interested in big data, usability, obviously machine learning. And so I had someone with all the component of what I needed to build the technology who was in Toronto and available. So that was a bit of a miracle. And when Jeff uh, joined the team, it was very clear that we needed to see the data ourselves. We couldn't depend on customers um, and we couldn't depend on, on the suppliers to come in, the companies who are uh, wanting to do business with the enterprise um, because they just don't do it, right? There's so many portals that they're asked to update. And we knew that if we were depending on them, it was gonna be very difficult. And if we were only depending on our customers' data to build this platform, it was also gonna have um, a lot of roadblocks. And so by seeding the data, by using machine learning, which I didn't know what it was, uh, and building on Google, we were able to start grabbing information about every company in the world that mattered. So we built algorithms to pull the right kind of information, to create a profile, to know what kind of information is relevant. Um, and then we built algorithms that looked at 300 different dimensions of what makes a company similar or not to one another. So suddenly we had you know, this enormous amount of, of data. We had a platform that could give back to our customers a lot more than what they were giving us. And so we were able to start giving back value and get them to see things that they couldn't see before uh, they had Tailbook, but they're just limited to having, you know, a list of vendors from their financial system. And so that's, that was the catalyst of how we've, we are today and how we evolve. Right. And, and that early point, I mean, that early decision point to bring Jeff on board as CTO, was that difficult for you as a not, cause you're not really, you're, you're not technical founder, so to speak, right? In terms of ability to code and that sort of stuff. We, we hear that a lot, like the business founder trying to find a technical partner and there's lots of obviously roadblocks and uh, speed bumps along the way for that. Like, was that, was that not the case for you? It was pretty easy and smooth at that point or did that feel like a big risky decision at that point in time? Like, how did you kind of think through that piece well, of the puzzle? So I had planned six big customers and I was still by myself. You know, I had some contractors that were helping me. I had a tech team in Montreal that was building our MVP. And I always remember I've met hundreds of investors because I was looking, I had never raised capital before. So you look at me back then, you know, mother of three who's never raised capital. Who's <laughs> got this crazy idea that's not easy to explain. Um, it's easier now, but it wasn't easy to explain back then. And, um, you know, to, to instill the level of confidence in investor that not only you have a good idea, but you can actually execute on the idea uh, is hard. And so I remember I met this investor that looked at me and says, hey, Lone Ranger, like, you can't do this by yourself, right? right? Like, yeah. nobody's going to give you money if you're doing this by yourself. You need to get a team. And I remember looking at it and I was like, well, I need capital. I had no money. He's like, I need capital to be able to 
to get a team. He's like, well, you're not going to get capital without a team. So you got to figure it out. And I remember kind of feeling quite defeated. I, I left this meeting going like, oh my God, like, how are we going to able to attract a CTO and what he was recommending is either a COO or commercial officer. Like, how can you attract, you know, the talent if you can't pay them? Like, you, I mean, it's the right kind of talent. And so um, that seemed really daunting. I started interviewing quite aggressively uh, CTOs and I, I found that process to be very difficult because I don't have technical um, knowledge and it's a bit harder to sell too. this idea of, you know, data and procurement. Um, and so I was meeting CTOs who were, who would build software, but didn't necessarily understood data. And I didn't know how much we would rely eventually on our data to be successful and have this as our differentiator. Um, and I was just really fortunate and someone knew Jeff and reached out and I heard you're looking for a CTO. I know this guy that the company was with just got acquired. And um, he may be, you know, he may be actually really good for you based on his background. So Jeff and I met, I remember him giving me his background and I was keeping it together. But inside I was like, oh my God, how's that even possible? And even, even said like, it's like my entire career was all done in a way that I would land and build Dealbook. So that was pretty special. <clears throat> he came, yeah, that is, that is. The CEO that had exited from the company work with um, the two of them at the time were looking to work together again. So I ended up hiring Jeff and um, Ian Woodbury, uh, who's no longer a CEO, he's now working on their product. Um, but that was the catalyst point. And the two of them together, their combined experience to build an enterprise grade software with the machine learning components uh, to, uh, uh, you know, a technology that would scale with millions and millions of data points and users all of that, it was very easy for me to let go because I knew that I knew that they knew what they're doing and beyond. And so, you know, to have Jeff making like the architecture decision, choosing to build it on Google, like all these decisions, you know, was his and um, and there was a mm -hmm. lot of confidence there. So I didn't have to worry about the technology um, being a bit more involved in product. But at some point, you have to also there's so many components of building a company. You have to build, you know bring the right people and let them, um, let them execute. So that was yeah, yeah. easier on the product side for me. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, what about the other sides of the business? What, what other early lessons did you kind of have from, from starting this business? Was there early kind of failures or successes that kind of, uh, drove you or uh, made you realize that you need to go in a different direction or whatever? Like how did you kind of, what were those early lessons learned outside of the technology side of stuff? Yeah, I mean, um, I think hiring the right people is really, really key. I think there's some decisions I've made hiring because it was convenient or someone wanted to work with us. <laughs> and the decisions that you make about the people that come into your company are really critical um, because it trickles down, right, to everyone else that they would build or manage. And, and so really understanding what I was building and I thought for a long time, um, yeah, the beginning of Tailbook, you saw the movie Social Media, the social media with uh, the Facebook story where he has this great idea and then Sean Parker comes in and Sean Parker makes it like to the next level. Um, I kind of felt like that was going to happen and it didn't. <laughs> so, right, like right. it's really on me. So that was a good learning, like, oh, it's really on me. And then, and then for, I'd say too long, thought that 
others would know more than I do because they had done it before or felt, you know, they may have more experience in some areas. And, uh, and I think the big key learning for me has been to follow my instincts that they're actually, I'm pretty good at this and I have pretty good instincts about my business. And so that level of confidence to know took me a little, a little time to figure that out, that, it, that no one else would know better than I do. And it was okay for me to be involved at the right level. And then also learning where to let go and how to let go uh, is very important. And so that, you know, I, I kind of call it my transition from founder to CEO. <clears throat> and I'm still working on that all the time. And I tell my team, if I go back in too deep, like push me out. <laughs> so, right. Um, that's really important. And then I'd say the other lesson we have, which uh, has really resulted in a recent round of financing, is when when you have an idea like Tealbook, I knew that <clears throat> what I want to solve is an employee in a company in order to get the supplier that they need to do their job, to get the best possible outcome without putting the company at risk, getting the most value of that supplier, it just needed to happen instantly or really, really fast, much faster than what existed. But to get there and how you build the technology, especially as the technology and the market changed dramatically was, was you know definitely a puzzle. And until last year, we had taken a software approach to this. Now, if we build a software uh, that's really easy to use and it's giving us a good reason to get data from our customers that we can enrich, and then give data back in a way that people can make decisions. And so we were very use case space as the data grew and became more useful, we were able to, to, to sell something like, if you need to discover suppliers in new geography or you wanna increase competitiveness, Tailbook has this amazing algorithm engine that you can find similar suppliers instantly. So that was a use case. Another use case was because we had this LinkedIn-like platform for the enterprise, that almost looked like your, your supplier relationship management. And so if you want to have more information that's centralized, you could use Tailbook for that. And then we had an exercise with one of our larger clients who want to know if they were reporting their, their small and diverse suppliers as well as, as they should, which is a, you know, it's a very important um, uh, requirements in the U.S. Specifically, if you get government contract or sell to the government, you need to know and report mm -hmm. businesses that are women-owned, veteran-owned, gay, lesbian, things like that that are certified. <clears throat> and what we did in that exercise is we use our machine learning to look for sources of supplier diversity. And in 10 days, we're able to, to populate 500,000 profiles with 800,000 plus certificate that were validated and unified back to that record and giving back our customer 20% improvement in their reporting in 10 days. This is an exercise that takes five to six. Wow. It's very costly. You have to do this over mm -hmm. and over again. <clears throat> so that was a giant win. This was a Fortune 100 company. And, it, you know, we took the approach of like, oh, we could do supplier diversity. So we're going to start selling supplier diversity as opposed to looking at, at this as like our technology is a mechanism to make data better, right? To make data more complete. Yeah. Um, and a big, so we were selling the software. I'd say that a lot of our customers were also at the same time in a market that was being disrupted. If you're in procurement, it's a quite a, traditionally, you know, a tactical, repetitive, process-driven function. And so you, you're hearing a lot of the technologies now that are, you know, disrupting any sort of workflow and processes. So it's, it's a bit of a scary place to be. And so there's a lot of pressure to get ahead of this disruption. 
And so procurement teams start looking for technologies and answers. And nobody, even two years ago, even now, debatably, nobody really has the answers. <clears throat> but what software companies did is, is told them a really good digitization and digital transformation story, a good data story uh, by moving their on-premise software to the cloud. And so all these procurement teams rushed to invest millions of dollars into the Kufa, Zyvalua, Ariba, which worked fine, you know, some better than others for different reasons, but they moved to software and then they, they needed to then have their system integrators to, you know, take the data, clean it, enrich it, populate it to the software. Then they would ask the suppliers to come in and populate the profiles in the software. So now we're adding a variable cost, we're, we're adding delays and dependency on people, humans, <clears throat> and then you have to find mechanism to keep the data up to date. Then you have to find IT resources to connect the data to another system and on and on and on. And so two years later, what we're now facing is failures. We're, we heard the city of New York went $54 million over budget to implement an S2P, a source to pay software with one of the big system integrators. Uh, we're hearing Gardner says 75% of IT project will fail because of poor data quality. And so suddenly all these statistics and now all these very, you know, real, um, say overrun budget friction and even failures of customers trying to lead their transformation with cloud-based technologies. Um, you know, it's pretty scary if, if their investment are on the line and their, their data is still not solved for. And so <clears throat> I'm thinking probably a long story or a short, like a <laughs> longer story out of this, but the, the point was to really understand our market, understand to a point last year when we were selling the software, we could not get the sell cycle we needed and the budget that we needed to, to be truly successful, to become the market leader. And for us to get data, we needed to grow really fast. And so we were, you know, we were putting things on the wall that we had to do something that was drastically different to grow faster. And, um, and at, at that time that Matt Palak Derry joined us as their head of commercial strategy, he reached out to me because his company got bought by Coupa, which is the one of the large uh, software companies in our space. And being at Coupa, he saw some of the same inefficiencies caused by lack of good data and automation. And he was sitting at KPMG, heard the $54 million over budget from the city of New York and looked at them and said, you know, do you, how do you guys do this? You have $90 million or so of, of budget for implementing our software. Like, how are you, you know, enriching the vendor master? How are you populating data into the software? Do you have any technology? And the guy said, if I had the answer, I wouldn't be sitting here. And so that's when Matt reached out to me. He's like, I think that, you know, if you're doing what I think you're doing, not what I'm reading on your website, I think there's an enormous opportunity and I'd love to talk to you. And so we, connected in March of last year and spent a lot of time together. And he was articulating the same vision, but addressing it where our customers had invested millions of dollars, their investments were not in the line. The failures were caused by lack of good data, which then could be cured with, with automation and our technology. And so that made a lot more sense and was addressing a much more urgent need and a much larger problem than trying to sell you know, the sexy interface that people could use with data that was not connected to this huge investment. And usually when they invest millions of dollars in these systems, you know, they have to champion it, they have to get the budget, they have to get the commitment. Now that they're getting the commitment for employees to use that software, looking at another mm -hmm. software would be confusing. And so 
we just pivoted, not the technology, but we pivoted how we articulated Tailbook as the data foundation that powers all of your e-procurement software. Um, and we did that in July just by talking to analysts and thought leaders and chief procurement officers. And the, the, the re response in the market was like a G-force. Um, mm. you know, we had three, Matt and two <clears throat> analysts who drew the same slide with Tailbook as the data foundation that fed into all the big system and all the digital solution that came to market with the mechanism, which we're now uh, you know, uh, building this category of autonomous supplier data enrichment um, as a way to automate the data. Data has always been a service, but now you can add basically data as a product and that becomes a, like a foundational add-on to your technology stack. And so that messaging really, really resonate with the market. We looked at our team, what needed to happen at Tailbook in order to do this pivot. And luckily and amazingly, our team got on board really fast. Um, that was kudos to the team, kudos to Matt to be able to articulate the market opportunity, what we, what we were truly worth just a way that we were actually not uh, articulating properly to the market. And so in September, I went to Chicago to a conference and I started the presentation and we had some of the largest companies, you know, in the world, like GM, Siemens, like big companies. And on stage, I, I started with raise your hand if you have some confidence in the quality and completeness of your supplier data today. And everyone mm -hmm. smiled, everyone looked around, no one raised their hands. And then I said, okay, raise your hand if you believe that good quality supplier data, complete supplier data is absolutely critical to your digital transformation. And you get 100% of people raising their hands. Mm -hmm. And yeah. now I'll add the, the third question and saying like, who here has invested in a cloud-based as to your P2P software in the past 24 months? And we know these are big investment. You'll get three quarters of the audience raising their hands and it lands so well that the problem, right? We have a huge data problem. In fact, we call it a data crisis. And, um, and talking about the why, why it's so important and why, why it's important to quantify the value of data and why is it, it's important to resolve it because of where, where you know, the world is heading. And so that was really exciting because then we start getting, you know, I mean, our sales cycle start getting much faster. We start, we increase our yeah. pricing the way that we articulate the data categories that we would be able to automate and feed into the system that attracted investors, um, really good funds, um, refinery ventures with the partner there founded, uh, share this. If you share anything on a website, that's a company that you founded, really smart, very excited about the stage and what we were building. And then Grand Ventures from Michigan came in, very strong uh, enterprise, uh, mostly SaaS, but they really like data companies as well. And then Workday Ventures came in at the last hour. We were already oversubscribed and then Workday Ventures got really excited about what we were building. And considering they had bought Scout RFP in our space, um, just a few, while they, it's closed after that initial conversation, but they bought them for about half a billion dollars. Um, you know, we're then in the process of acquiring them. So this, you know, that just validated the fact that they came into that round for us that that data is sort of the missing link um, to where procurement is heading. And so that was incredibly exciting. Um, and now, you know, building the team, it's, it's just, it's a lot of fun. So we found product market fit. We're still validating some of our assumptions, but 
we, I mean, the, 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 the logos we're getting now, the size of deals, the speed of how we're able to close business. It's, um, it's, it's very exciting. Yeah, maybe, the, and maybe that leads to a couple of questions. I'll, I'll save the capital raise question for, for the second one, but for the first one, like, is there any, you're obviously dealing with big companies, like you said, a lot of fear factor around some of the implementations they're doing on their cloud migration and everything like that. Um, any kind of friction points there for you, you know, as a small company? Um, and, and if there are, because, you know, you mentioned about long sales cycles, and which is kind of common with these big enterprises. How do you going to come overcome them? Or is it purely that kind of pivot that you mentioned that you did in September around the messaging and everything that, that really led to kind of overcoming some of those, uh, you know, friction points with big, big buyers? Yeah, I mean, that, the, the pivot in the way we articulate your book, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's addressing something that they're looking for and it's really urgent. So a lot of them are putting data strategy um, or stakeholder experience, which you need good data to feed into or maximizing your investment in the system. So we align with a lot of the priorities right now. And so, and the best way to describe it's sort of your data as a product and kind of out of the box. You know, we, a lot of organization will work with like the Informatica or the large data companies and they're gonna create a data lake for the enterprise. The vendor data won't be the top priority, right? It may be really down the line. And so if your procurement or you're the CIO of a company and you're looking at all these systems that are really critical, your suppliers are very critical to the business from a risk, from a, from a for so many reasons. Um, and so, but it's a bit of a mess. And, and the problem with our customers to today is that when they do buy software and they have all these costs associated with it, they also need to make really important decisions about where their master data will live or their, their, their record of truth. And they are choosing that to live in, in software today. And the problem with that is now that they have to live with their decision. And so the costs associated with making that decision and making that commitment it's not easy to then replace that software, but technology is changing so fast that the chief procurement officers are finding or looking for ways, how can I have shorter term agreement with my software and how can I change it? If there's a better technology that comes out, I wanna be able to have uh, less friction and have the, the flexibility to change. And the analogy we give them is around like even the cell phone. A few years ago, if you lost your cell phone, you lost all your pictures, all your contacts, it's, you know, email everybody, to to send their contact again. As today, because all your data is in the cloud, it doesn't really matter. You'll be sad if you lose your cell phone because you have to buy another one, but it, there's no friction in your data. And it's the same data that powers your laptop, your Apple Watch, your iPad. And so it's this very similar analogy we're giving our customers. And I, I think they're really ready for it. So from a cell cycle perspective, we've seen a huge change. And because we're so easy to implement and we, we're building integration for the larger players, also, we have two-way integration for all the other digital solution. It just makes it really easy to implement. We give, you know, we call it a till moment of giving their, their data with so much more. So just the ability to see things you can see across 100% of your suppliers, it's kind of game changing. So there's no real friction for us there. Um, it makes it actually incredibly easy for our customers. That's good. No, that's, that's good. Um, and then, so, you, I mean, obviously you touched on the, the capital raise side of things, and this was your, you know, first kind of go at raising capital. Um, you know, you made it sound earlier in your comments a little bit probably easier than it was. Um, anything takeaways from that experience? Was it, was it 
pretty fluid and it all kind of came together pretty quickly and easily or um, was there a lot of kind of heavy lifting in the background and relationship development with different investors in the background that had to go on to kind of precede uh, the actual funded round? Yeah, raising capital is hard. <laughs> it's, <Yeah. laughs> um, it's, it's, it's hard, especially at the beginning. What made this round so much easier is we had growth. If you have growth, yeah. money will come. That's easy. That's the easier part. If you don't have growth, you may not have a business. Um, mm -hmm. Or you have to sell. If you're too early to experience real growth, then you're selling yourself and the idea. Uh, so our last round, like almost too easy that I had to look back and say, how could it be this easy? But that's just because now we found product market fit. We found the right investors. They got excited and we have growth to be able to show and that got them really excited. And, and we were really fortunate to also have really strong strategic investors coming into this round. But in the early days, it's really hard. And, and um, there's a lot of barriers to raising capital. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of option. And for me, the learning curve was very steep. I never had to raise money for my consulting firm. I just build it organically, build enough cash flow to get people on the team and, and built it that way. And so this was my first experience it's not that dissimilar from selling. Like it's really how you position yourself, right? It's, it's the pitch, it's the yeah. relationship, it's um, the, the, the it, you know, instilling a sense of confidence that you're capable of doing it. And, and frankly, if I looked at myself back then, I don't know if I would have invested in me, right? Like I'll be really honest, like the people that did, like kudos to them because I was high risk as a, as a, as a mom of three. If, my kids, luckily, knock on wood, they've been very healthy, but, but there's a lot of situation that could happen that made this really hard. And mentally, it's really challenging. And it's very lonely. And there's a lot of, of, of things that, you know, would be easy for someone to fail uh, or decide not to do it anymore. And, and I had a very successful consulting business, so it would have been easy for me to go back to this. And so you really have to, to sell yourself and, and, and still a level of confidence. When I had the momentum and I could show that there was a real opportunity and there was, this was a real business, the next thing was building my team, having the confidence that I had the right people to build this company to a certain point where we could actually scale. And so that was my next. So I think, I think the feed, maybe the feedback or the, 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 the guidance here is just to listen to investors and listen to the market, like really know what stage you're pitching at, what do you need, what do they need to see in your company at the stage that you're at to get them excited um, and really own into that because that will change the type of investors you're gonna be pitching to will also change based on that stage. And so if you're going at the beginning to pitch yourself and your idea, just really make that the focus and, 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 and go find investors that are comfortable with early stage that get excited with visionary ideas um, and uh, yeah, and just know, just understand the stage that you're 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 raising capital at. And I think that was a big learning curve for me. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think it is for everybody. <laughs> so um, maybe uh, one last question before before we leave you. Um, you know, you've obviously mentioned that you have three kids and and everything. Like, how do you how do you kind of juggle everything? How do you manage all these different competing priorities that you have in, in your life, both work and personal and, and any kind of tips there for, for how you, how you do it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was very unbalanced um, for for some time, especially in the beginning. It, it becomes and to have a personality to be able to, and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of founders. You have to be very obsessive about what you're building, and that's the only mm-hmm. way to get to where I am is being completely obsessed with you <laughs> and solving All the right. problem. I was eating, talking, sleeping, till book, and and that's difficult for for a family. And so, you know, it's not all perfect. Um, that was definitely uh, something I had to find a way to find balance to be able to get out of it. And you know, I tried really hard. And luckily, my husband's an entrepreneur and, and he's very supportive. But he was even like, I don't want to talk about till book ever again. Like. <laughs> <laughs> My kids likely don't want to talk about Tillbook either. So that was a bit easier to, with them, like they're not interested. They want to talk about something else. So that gave me a channel to be able to step outside of my own head and, and be with them and do other things. Mm-hmm. The, the big moment for me was last summer, my husband forced a two week vacation on me. And so as Matt joined the company, uh, my husband booked a house in the Bahamas for two weeks on a small island called Harbor Island which we love to visit. Um, and I, I thought to myself, two weeks, are you crazy? Like, I can't leave the business for two weeks. That's way too long. <laughs> and Matt just starting and I had so much anxiety around it. And it was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I give a lot of credit mm-hmm. to my husband for this. Um, but we went to an island where you walk around, you drive golf cart and it's very easy living and you're just in the moment. And for the first week was really hard. I dialed in every morning, asked Matt if I need, if he needed me. He's like, nope, you're good. We're good. We got this. We got this. And then by the second week, I was a lot more comfortable. And by the end, I was changed. You know, I was, I was spending more time and, and being more in the moment. And um, I put back with a lot of perspective. I redid the office. We did a lot of changes in our company to be able to pivot. I was just a lot more yeah I'm a lot more strategic not so caught in the weeds and so yeah. I, think, I think the lesson here is just to to be able to find ways to be balanced um and if it's you know someone around you that forces you to, to do it or find your yeah. own ways to, to find balance it's really important and it's important for the sanity it's important for the company and the people in the company too giving that time for matt to come in and, and you know establish himself as a commercial lead was really important to him and, and our team. So, all right, that, that would just say that that's, it's a, yeah. I mean, I think not, I mean, all, all founders know this <clears throat> and how you do it is, is a little trickier and it's personal. Well, and it's a bit of a journey. It doesn't happen overnight, right? There's, there's different phases of the business that require different kind of uh, approaches from yourself and that kind of changes as, you, as the business and the team builds out, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm feeling like the team or company, everything's more grown up now, right? And so yeah. I'm still always, obviously I'm committed and invested, but <clears throat> I'm able to step away a little bit more because we have such a great executive team. They've all have been in position at scaled companies. So there's a lot of comfort with that. And my role's changing. I'm a lot more focused on our thought leadership, you know, the vision. I do a lot of speaking engagement and a little less in the day-to-day and I've got a few more hires to completely kind of change um but uh I can see the light <laughs> yeah no that's good it's that's important good. Well, I really- it has to survive without me right so it has to survive w- without someone in the company and so building something that can scale and endure through is uh is really important yeah 
Well, um, Stephanie, it's been a, a real pleasure to have you on today and uh, really learn about your story and your journey and everything. So I really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Take care, Ed. Yeah, thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you again, Stephanie, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to have this interview. Personally, I got a lot out of the descriptions of the realities of the entrepreneurial highs and lows that come with venturing into the abyss to start your business, but was also inspired by her story and making that leap knowing that if you're going to go to work every day of your adult life, you have to enjoy it. With so many gems shared over the course of the podcast, it's hard to not keep piling on everything I took from this interview. What are your major takeaways? Please let us know in the comments below. Stephanie is truly an amazing person and will be the driving force behind Tealbook's future successes. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to like and subscribe for future content.